deep work is like a superpower. The, the amount you can produce and the quality you can produce is not just a little bit better. If you're working really intensely without distraction, it's orders of magnitude better. You've got some living yet to do. I won't give up on you. See these machines. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Man Talks podcast. I am Connor Beaton, the founder of Man Talks. And I'm Roger Nairn, the director of marketing for Man Talks. We hope that you have had an exceptional end to 2015. We're now about a week, week and a half into 2016. Uh, we're sure that you have some big, ambitious goals or a vision for this year of what you want to accomplish, whether it's with your fitness, your health, your relationships, or your business. Let's or, kick or some ass. Career. Yeah, let's just, we're stoked. We're yeah. excited, as you can, I'm sure you can tell. Um, and, you know, we started off the, the year with a bang. We ended it with a bang. And we are, we're kicking it off this week with an exceptional guest, Mr. Cal Newport. Roger, why don't you tell them about it? Yeah, him? Cal Newport is an assistant professor of computer science at Georgetown University who specializes in the, in the theory of distributed algorithms. Wow. Wow. He previously earned his PhD from MIT. Wow. Another wow. And graduated from Dartmouth College. Boom. Triple wow. In addition to his academic work, Cal is a writer who focuses on contrarian, evidence-based advice for building a successful and fulfilling life in school and after graduation. His book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, which is amazing, argues that following your passion is bad advice. Um, but his new book, Deep Work, which launches on January 5th, is all about focus in this new, amazing digital age, which is kind of the new norm. So today's topic digs deep into the, the whole idea of this deep work. So we're going to jump right into it with Mr. Cal Newport. Hey, Cal, welcome to the Mad Talks podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, we always like to ask our guests, what is it that you do in the world and, and how, would you describe, how would you describe it? Well, my day job is I'm a computer science professor at Georgetown University. I focus on the theory side of computer science, or the side where you sit at a whiteboard instead of sitting at a computer screen. Uh, on the side, though, I write books. And I, I tend to write books about topics that are interesting and relevant to me at that time in my life. So for example, uh, three or four years ago when I was entering the job market, I wrote a book about how people find work they love that seemed very relevant at that time. Uh, and now that I'm a professor pursuing tenure, it made sense that the book I was going to write had to do with how people actually uh, build things of real value. So I'm a professor who writes books on things that are relevant to being good uh, or successful in the world of work. Very cool. And, and, and the first book you mentioned, uh, which is so good, uh, The Can't Ignore You, is an incredible book that um, I, I read probably about a year and a half ago and, and ran right through it. I thought it was absolutely incredible. I first learned about it through, I think I was listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast and he was talking about it or, or through his site. You've got a connection to, to Tim. I know you've, you've written uh, some blog posts for him and, and vice versa. He's written some blog posts for you. And I, I also know that Derek Sivers, uh, the founder of CD Baby, is a, a big fan of the book book as well. I know on his blog, he gives it a 10 out of 10. Um, but this new book, uh, which is all, which is called deep work, um, is just about to hit the market on January the 5th. Everyone's very, very excited about it. I'm wondering if you can give it a quick little overview on what it's all about. Yeah, the idea is pretty simple. So deep work is my term for the activity of focusing without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. And the, the hypothesis I lay out in the book is that Deep work is becoming increasingly valuable in our current economy at the same time that it's becoming increasingly rare. 
And therefore, we have a classic economic mismatch. So if you are one of the, the few people to actually intentionally cultivate your ability to do deep work, you're going to thrive in the economy. So the book is basically two parts. One, I make that argument. Part two, all right, if you believe it, how does one cultivate their deep work ability? Very cool. And, and just out of curiosity, how, how have you kind of gone about cultivating that sense of deep work within yourself? Yeah, well, so to me, the, the notion of deep work being important uh, was somewhat obvious because I'm in one of the, the rare fields that exist today where deep work is explicitly talked about and valued. So I work in theoretical computer science where the ability to focus for long periods of time is not just nice, it's actually at the core of keeping your job. Uh, if you can't focus for a really long amount of time, you can't solve hard math problems. And if you can't solve hard math problems, you don't get tenure and you lose your job. So I, I grew up in, in, a, in an area where people were very clear, like this is very important. I, uh, I did my, my PhD work at MIT's theory group where I could actually see some of the world's greatest masters of deep work at work. Uh, literally people with genius grants that would sit there and stare at whiteboards for hours at a time. So to me, it had always been somewhat natural that deep work was important. Um, now, with this book, what I did is once I started looking into it, I was surprised to find uh, how generally important it is, not just for those of us who solve math proofs, but basically for anyone who's in a non-entry-level knowledge work job, a job where they actually have to create things that are valuable. Deep work is like a superpower. Uh, it, the, the amount you can produce and the quality that you can produce is not just a little bit better. If you're working really intensely without distraction, it's orders of magnitude better. Uh, so <laughs> I know I... I just ignored your question. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. I think that said it said something else. But I get I I, uh, I get excited about uh, about this about this premise. So just to get back to your question, um, so I've I've always uh, valued deep work in my life. But just to give you an example of how powerful it is, uh, during the year in which I was researching and writing this book, uh, this was a year that you would expect my performance as a professor, like my academic output, to decrease some because it takes a lot of time to write a book. And that time was being taken away from time I would normally spend on research. Right. But simply because the act of writing the book made me really tune up my deep work habits even better. I started keeping uh, – restarted my deep work tally. So I was keeping track of how many deep work hours I had per week. Uh, I began to be much more aggressive about protecting time for deep work. I began to find other occasions like my commute and walks on weekends, other time to do deep work. So because I took my deep work more seriously – even though I had much less time, my academic output during that year doubled as compared to any previous year. And I used that as an indicator of just how powerful uh, – if you can teach yourself to focus intensely and put aside good time for it, it's really powerful what it can produce. Yeah, I, I, mean, th I think you touched on a, a couple key points there. And I just wanted to backtrack. I think you, know, you mentioned that there are people and jobs out there that, are really, uh, that really require this skill. And it occurs to me that it's kind of like this, this – uh, funny space where people that create content, especially written content or graphic content, it's probably in a, a very um, important skill for them. And yet they're probably the ones that are bombarded the most, right, by, you know, an overwhelming amount of content online and looking at all this content and, and constantly being immersed by it. Um, so it's, it's kind of a funny counterintuitive thing. But um, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of like my own experience, I think deep work has really been I, w I have never uh, really heard the term. I usually call it focus, like this, or the or the state of flow. Um, do you think that there's a difference between a sense of deep work and a and a state of flow or or focus, or or how would you define those differences? It's subtle. Deep work is more general 
than flow. So uh, a state of flow is something that you achieve when essentially you're uh, you're applying your skills to a problem of just the right difficulty that's not too easy, it's not too hard, and it can be immensely pleasurable. Uh, and that certainly requires deep work to get into that state. There's also other states, however, that when you're doing deep work that you can fall into. Um, so for example, to get better at something, uh, which requires deliberate practice. So to to learn something that's hard and new, uh, that also requires unbroken concentration. That also requires deep work. But that state is not pleasant and actually is different than a flow state because uh, practicing something hard as opposed to performing something you know how to do uh, is different than flow. So I think deep work covers flow. Uh, deep work also covers deliberate uh, state of deliberate practice, which is also just uh, just as important. Mm. And with deep work, is it something you can focus on multiple things throughout a day and, and kind of, I guess, jump in between deep work focuses uh, or, or, or is that being counterintuitive? Yeah, it's, so that's a good question as well. To back it up a little bit, uh, you know, an important argument I make about deep work is that it's a skill, not a habit. So people often mistake it to, to be a habit like flossing, something they know how to do and it's just a matter of trying to do more of it. And I really emphasize that deep work is more a skill like playing the guitar. It's something that you, you have to practice at and get better at. Um, so just to say, I'm going to put aside some time and focus. If it's not, if you haven't been training your ability to concentrate, you're actually leaving uh, quite a bit of productivity on the table. It's something that you can actually systematically uh, practice. And you know, to bring that back to the question you just asked, to get the best uh, out of deep work sessions, you, you can look at multiple things, but not too many things. Because uh, there's this notion of attention residue, something I really emphasize in the book, which is every time you switch your attention, it leaves a residue in your brain that takes a while to diminish. And until it diminishes, you're operating at reduced capacity. So once you switch your focus, it's going to take a while of lack of distraction before your brain completely clears out the old residue. So what's the science behind that? I mean, what is that residue? It's unclear. So the term was actually termed by a psychologist named Sophie Leroy, and she observed it in clinical studies, right? So what, what you can actually do is, is take people in the lab and uh, take half the people and make them switch their attention briefly to something else and then back to a hard puzzle. And the other half just have them work on the puzzle without having to shift their attention that one time. And you can just measure it directly in the lab that the shifting group does worse on the puzzle going forward uh, than the group that didn't have the, the recent distraction. Um, I don't think they know what the neurological correlate is. But this definitely is uh, observed. Clifford Nass, the late Clifford Nass of Stanford communications professor, observed something similar. Um, that, In fact, he found something even more scary, which was chronic multitaskers, those who, who switch their attention a lot and are often seeking distraction and, and flitting around, uh, think that when it comes time to focus, they can if they need to. But they actually have permanently diminished that capability, that if you take someone who spends most of their time flitting their attention between things and then you lock them in a room and there's no possible distractions, they're actually much worse at focusing. They've, they've in essence lost their ability to focus. So it's a little bit scary. I mean, deep work is something that has to be protected and, and practiced and preserved. I think it's something that needs to be taken pretty seriously if you want to make it a part of your life. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, you made some good points. Um, I like the analogy of playing the guitar because it, it is something that you have to cultivate. And I think going back to what you were saying before, uh, you know, you mentioned cultivating deep work when you're going on walks and, you know, on the subway station and, and stuff like that. What, what does that look like for you? Because I know that for myself, those have been some of the most, maybe not 
productive, but some of the most introspective spaces is just like we live in Vancouver. So going for a walk on the seawall and putting on some classical music and just like getting into a specific topic or subject and, and kind of routing through it seems to be one of the most productive things that I can do. So what, what does it look like for you when you're out and about and not behind your desk? How do you get into that sort of deep work state? Yeah, well, we could use today as an example. So this morning I had something I had to take care of, a logistical thing. I finished it around 10 a.m. Uh, at 10 a.m. I I drove down to a, a trail in the woods. I was uh, I hiked for about an hour and 20 minutes in the woods because I find the, the lack of uh, things grabbing at your attention in the woods is very conducive to focus. Uh, this whole time in my head, I was working on a technical problem. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand, just to give you some context, uh, the connection between a computational model I'm working on and another computational model. It's, it's tricky. And so I just was thinking that, in the that old, that old chestnut. That old, you know, that old cliche. <laughs> so so, so I, was, I, I was in the woods till about, about 1130. And then I drove back, dropped off my car at my house, and then walked into the, the small city outside of Washington, D.C. that I, that I live, live near, thinking the whole time. I ate some quick food, and then I walked to a coffee shop, got a coffee. I sat and was taking notes on it at that coffee table in the coffee shop for an hour, then walked home to do this, this podcast. So that was about three or four hours where uh, mixing between being on my feet and sitting down and thinking in a variety of, of contexts, the whole time thinking about the same problem. And now I have a pretty good you know, my brain is wrapped around this problem. And I have this understanding of it that's going to be useful. But that's that's what deep work can look like for me. It's often many hours in a row and often not behind a desk. But during that process, are you, are you a bit of a zombie? Are you are you so focused that you're completely unaware of everything around you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, my next my next question is going to be, you know, are you married? Yes. How do you I can Im- I can imagine that being in deep work can sometimes pass into the you know into, into your relationship and and some you know men being men we have a tendency not to focus when we when we should be focused how do you how do you kind of snap out of it and how do you be present when you need to be present well I, I have a, a a strong rule that at the end of my workday I do a shutdown and that's it for work because I'm a, I'm a big believer and I emphasize this in the book that for several different reasons if you can shut down. Uh, thinking, professional thinking at the early evening and just let your mind be uh, free from that for the rest of the evening till the next morning. It's, it's actually excellent, an excellent way to recharge your mental energy. It's also a way to let your brain work with everything you've done all day and make connections and file it away. So my evenings are always clear from work. I also try to keep my weekends free from deep work as well. And you're absolutely right. And sometimes I fail to do that either because I'm close to solving a problem and I just can't help it. Or maybe I have a deadline. It's like I got to solve this problem, and it does get me in trouble. <laughs> it does because it's um, when you're deep working. Uh, it can be a very sort of it's hard, but very fulfilling personal experience. But for the people around you, uh, it's it, it's weird to see. You're like, what is going on? I just was talking to you for the last 15 minutes. You're just you're just sitting there, kind of staring at the wall. So it can be a little disconcerting to to the outside world. So Cal, just on that note, because I think like my partner and I, we both work at home and we have some agreements because um, we both have our own states of flow and how we get into focus and how we can work together and be effective within our environment and, and space. Um, do you and your wife, like are there, do you have certain agreements that set you up for success in order to do the type of focused uh, deep work that you that you do? And if so, how did you go about creating those agreements? Yeah, it's well for me. It's binary. So there's this. There's a clear state. I'm working or not working. And uh, so my wife understands when I'm 
when I have time that I've set aside the work that 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 really means I'm sort of unreachable. Uh, now, often it's not a, an issue because you know most days maybe she'll be at her office or I'll be at my office, uh, so it doesn't matter. It's not like we're near each other, but we do work from home quite a bit, and, and we did have to negotiate this reality that for me, working from home is not a casual thing. Where it's like, yeah, I'm working, but we can also like get coffee and do some other things. It's you know, I tell her I'm working at home, I'm working a full day, or I'm working a half day. During the time when I'm working, the, the understanding is that I'm essentially unreachable, that, that work for me is often going to mean that I'm going to be sort of in states of intense focus and not really able to do anything else. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, one of the things that I, I, the reason why I asked that question is because I'm sure that there's a lot of listeners out there that are wondering how they can create this space within their own office environment or home environment and how they set that up. And like one of the things, for example, that we did is um, if we're both working from home and, you know, we're in the, in a similar space because we have a huge open living room um, and there's, there's two office, there's two like desks there, one for each of us to work at. Um, if, if we're wearing headphones, it's like a signal that it's a no, it's a no talk zone. So if, if one of us is wearing headphones, it's like a signal to the other one that, you know, I'm, I'm focused, I'm in the zone and I just need to be like left alone. So we have like little, um, signals to one another that, that kind of set the tone for that. So do you have a separate space or an office that's, that's for your work? Uh, well, at, at home, I guess we we share a home office. Um, though I'm often on foot or or elsewhere when when I'm doing work from home. But you know, my my vision, the the way I approach work is you know because I have this clear cutoff time. I, I don't work past five thirty on weekdays, and for the most part, I don't work on weekends. And and the way I actually accomplish that is that for me, when I'm working, it's very intense. It's either I'm in a state of of complete deep work or I'm taking a bunch of shallow task email replies, things I have to do online, batching them together, and then with you know great intensity trying to get through them as quickly as impossible. So for, for me, it's as if my workday is this very intense block, and then when I'm done, I'm done. And so the, the setup is um, – when I'm working, I'm working. It's uh, you know you, you you're not going to get me on the phone. I'm probably not going to answer your text message. Uh, if if someone I know sends me an email, they're they're probably not going to get a response. And, and I, I think this is actually an important point because uh, a lot of people today in the knowledge work culture. Um, allow the work to, to sort of spread out a little bit more. Let me let me do some more lower. Let me do some emails. Let me relax. Let me do some more. I'll come home. I'll work some more at night. So it, it makes more sense. I could have some conversations. I could do some other things. And I'm more of a proponent of you work in a, a confined, artificially constrained amount of time and you do it with great intensity. And then when you're done, you're completely done. I find that bimodal approach to be, be very efficient. But it also makes these type of rules very simply simple, right? If it's work time, I, I'm essentially unreachable. And if it's not work time, I'm completely reachable. Very cool. And do, and do you have a bit of a, a routine for sort of ramping up to get into uh, you know this state of deep work? Yeah, no, I, I do. And then something I, I talk a lot about is uh, these deep work routines and rituals are common when you study people who are good at entering states of deep work, where you have some sort of series of steps you go through every time before you start deep working. It's it's useful because it helps your mind shift into the deep work mindset without you having to wrench it into that mindset. So you can, if you just say on a dime, all right, enough, 
I'm going to turn off my computer and start working deeply. You're, you're probably going to have to expend a lot of your limited willpower to, to get away from the distraction and do it. But if you have some ritual you do, such as, okay, I put away the computer, I change the lighting in my office, I put a do not disturb sign on the door, I set a timer. If you have some sort of ritual, you're able to actually shift into that mindset with, with a lot less uh, willpower expenditure, which is why for me, if I'm going to do, say, more than three or four hours of deep work at a time, I'll almost always start with the ritual of a, a walk in some place contemplative, usually in some place wooded. As I get away from the sounds of the city and the roads and into the quiet, it helps my mind shift real quickly into now we're focusing on one thing. And then I can leave that walk and go back to an office or various places or get on a computer and do so with much more focus. But any sort of ritual can be useful to help you switch into this mindset quickly. Very cool. interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of funny because it's almost like counterintuitive that there are habits that set you up for the deep work. Whereas I think most people's perspective is that the, the deep work or the focus is, is the habit. Um, so it's kind of interesting how like the, the habits lead, lead to the creating the space of that. So, um, uh, you know, in, in the book, um, you kind of break it up into two parts, you know, the first being sort of describing, uh, you know, what this idea around deep work is. And then the second part, you, you present uh, a series of four rules, um, you know, to create this sort of rigorous training regimen. I wonder if you can kind of touch on what these rules are and how they can help to transform your mind and habits to support the skill. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'll give you the quick summary of each, and then I'll, I'm, I'm happy to jump into details as useful. Um, so the, the first rule, I believe, is work deeply. And this is all about different strategies you can put in place to support deep work in your regular working life. So uh, like Connor was just saying, it's this notion that's like deep work is the skill, and you can have habits you put around that make you better at the skill, just like you have a regular time to practice your guitar. So there's all sorts of different habits you can put into place uh, to help you support deep work. So that's what rule one, work deeply, is about. Um, the next rule, I believe, is embrace boredom. And what this is about is that deep work is a skill that has to be trained. Uh, you know, again, people say, why do I need the book? I know I need to focus more. It's like, well, okay, then what do you do about it? And there's really two pieces to it. One, there's, there's, there's non-obvious strategies that help you set up yourself to focus better. And then there's how do you train yourself to become better at focusing? That makes a big difference. So embrace boredom is about its brain training, its cognitive calisthenics. How do you actually train your brain so that when you stare at something for an hour, you get a lot more out of it. And this makes a big difference. I think people miss out on this, but if you grab the average distracted knowledge worker and then grab someone from one of these geniuses from the theory group at MIT that I used to watch and you put them in the same room for one hour the, the, the genius grant winner from MIT is going to be able to focus with a blistering intensity in that hour and actually do you know much more results than sort of the average person because they've trained their mind. They're, it's like a, a track athlete who's been running marathons their whole life. All right, the third rule is quit social media. And How dare you? Yeah, well, it's true. I am a heretic. I, I don't, I've never had a Facebook account. I've never had a Twitter account. I've never had any sort of social media account. It turns out that's allowed. <laughs> nothing really happens i mean you're, you're still allowed to have friends and uh, yeah, you yeah. still know what's going on in the world not mark but, Zucker not, not mark zuckerberg but yeah that's right he doesn't he would be upset i guess but <laughs> the more general point that's about is there, there's things you can do so that's about the tools you have in your life and uh being much more thoughtful about choosing which tools you have in your life and getting away from the what i call the any benefit mindset which is, hey, if there's any possible benefit I could get from this tool, I should probably use it just to be sure. 
and moving towards a much more, I call the craftsman tool selection mindset, where it's, yeah, there's tons of tools that are kind of useful, but really focusing in on the small number of things that give you the most value. So the idea is to get away from having just this huge menagerie of things they're trying to grab and distract your attention. If you want to be serious about focusing and being a deep worker, you got to start being more careful about what you allow into your attention landscape or not. And then the final rule is drain the shallows. And you know what this is about is practical strategies for reducing the amount of shallow work in your working life, where shallow work are tasks that might be very important but don't require uh, real focus or attention, like going to meetings or emails, these type of things. Uh, because obviously, if, if your whole life is full of shallow work, you don't have any time left to do deep work. So it's a lot of strategies for how in various jobs you can, you can reduce and, and then be more efficient about the shallow work that remains so that you can free up enough time to really uh, focus deeply and, and produce things. And the, the equation I give is shallow work is what keeps you from getting fired, but deep work is what gets you promoted. So you can't ignore shallow work. You can't stop answering your boss's emails. But you do want to try to, to, to constrain it and to minimize it as much as reasonable and be as efficient as possible about what remains. And that's hard. That, that whole chapter is about how to do that so that you can do the deep work that's going to create real value and really allow you to, to move ahead in your career. Very cool. Um, I mean, I love the idea of embracing boredom. And I, and I definitely want to revisit that um, in a second. But I have a question that just kind of like popped up. And I'm really curious because – um, you know, in, in an age where there's endless amounts of, of things that distract us, um, since you've eliminated a lot of those sort of mainstream uh, distractions, what are some of the things that kick you out of this state? Or what are some of the things that you find challenging, whether it's on a personal level to that, that sort of are confronting to getting you into this deep work? Because I'm, I'm assuming that there's a sort of like a different set of of issues that arise once you've kind of removed the social media and the Facebook and all those other things. Um, and maybe, maybe there were things at the beginning, because let's just say that there's, you know, Johnny tuning into the podcast and he's like, cool, I'm going to get rid of my Facebook account. Hey Johnny. Uh, hey Johnny. And I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of my social media. I'm going to embrace boredom. What are some of the initial states that he can expect to be confronted with? Now, that is an interesting question. So the first thing I can tell you is that when you eliminate a lot of these tools that are part of the attention economy, so tools that are actually designed specifically to grab your attention, it does make things a lot easier. So because I don't have social media and because I don't web surf, I don't, you know, if you give me a web browser, I don't know where to go to entertain myself. I don't have RSS feeds. I don't have a stable of sites. Because of that, it's actually much easier. That's why I'm able, when I work, my workday is so intense is because I don't really have anything to distract me. I, I, and so that does help. My crutch, the thing that still kills me is email. And th this is a different, a different problem, maybe even a different book. So if you want to know what, what kills me from deep work states during the workday, it's when I have to go to my email inbox because maybe I need to see something or answer something or I'm just, you know, I'm bored and that's the only thing left in my life that I can get a quick hit of something interesting. It kills me because of cognitive residue. That's 30 minutes every time I glance at that inbox from which I'm, I'm sort of uh, dead to the world of, of concentration. Um, and, you know, for most of us, we can't eliminate that yet. So that's the, that's the, last, that's the last challenge. But my, my, my advice to Johnny would be it's very important to, 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 again, come back to this point that deep work is something to be practiced. That's why I have these specific uh, exercises in the Embrace Boredom chapter. So if you go cold turkey, which I, I think is not a bad idea, you're going to find it's very hard at first. Um, your mind, uh, if you've been using, you know, mobile distractions for a long time, if your brain has become trained to get novel stimuli, 
reply every time it's bored to get a Facebook post or a, a I don't know what people use these days, Reddit or <laughs> a, right. a, I don't know, BuzzFeed or something. Definitely uh, Reddit. <laughs> Reddit yeah. Friendster and whatever. Yeah. Said you're, yeah. uh, <laughs> My, MySpace. You're, my, you're, you're MySpacing <laughs> and, and, uh, with your whatever on, on GeoCities page. Uh, whatever Geo it is. GeoCities page. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is uh at first it's very very hard because it's 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 like an addiction in the sense that your brain is used to getting the stimuli when bored so it's hard at first um but the point i would make to johnny is if you if you practice it and do it you know do it right kind of get through the detox there uh it gets easier and and you're able to not only get into a state of focus quicker you can sustain them longer also it just feels better after a while so it's very hard at first but the more of these things you strip away the easier it gets yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Well, I mean, thank you for all that. I think that's great advice for Johnny and, and all the listeners. Um, I wanted to kind of back the train up into um, the the boredom piece and embracing boredom because I, I kind of feel like there's a distinction to be made between um, if, almost like effective and non-effective use of boredom because I, I feel like there's probably there's probably a space within there that people are just bored and and doing nothing and not not being useful or or productive during that time and maybe that's just my like achiever nature but um, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that like do you think that there's effective use of of boredom or or can just sort of lounging in a state of boredom lead to that productivity? Well, it, it's a bit of a slippery term. Uh, so what I mean by boredom is the absence of novel stimuli. So it, it's a state where you don't have new things that are popping up that are you know interesting to you. Like uh, someone commenting on a Facebook post is a novel stimuli. It's new. It's about you. It's very interesting. So when you're, when you're absence of this entertaining stimuli – that's the type of boredom I'm interested in, and I'm interested in it because deep work is boring in that sense. Uh, by definition, if you're focusing hard on one thing, you're, you're not going to be exposed to like novel things or, or things that are really interesting and about you. You're going to feel this state of boredom. So if you're uncomfortable with it, if, if you really don't experience that state at all in your everyday life, then deep work is going to be very hard because your mind's not going to tolerate the sense of boredom that orbits around focus. Now, this doesn't mean that you, know, you need to lounge around more and do nothing. What I recommend how to, how to practice having this type of boredom is actually during the workday, and you can even do this at home, basically just write down on a pad, when is the next time I can use the internet? And it doesn't have to be a long time from the current moment. It could be 15 minutes from the current moment. It doesn't matter how long it is. But the point is, until you get to that point, you don't look at the internet. And then when you get to that point, you can go and look at the internet, do what you want to do. And then you write down, okay, now what's the next time I can look at the internet? And until you get then, you have to just sort of do what you're doing and, and you're not going to have a lot of novel stimuli. Uh, especially in the evening, I think this is great. You know, you're like, I'm going to watch this show and even when I get bored during parts of it, I can't use the internet till after the show's over. I can't check my phone. Uh, the reason you do this is that uh, this gives you these, these stretches of time in which you're going to feel bored in the sense that you want more stimuli and you resist that urge to actually look at it. And that's just like lifting muscles in your brain, getting your brain more confident and comfortable with resisting the urge to look at stimuli. So if you, if you write down what's next time you're going to use the internet throughout the day, even if you use the internet a ton during the day – you're going to have a ton of times during the day where you want to use it and you wait. 
And every time you do that, it's like doing a curl with a heavy dumbbell. It's strengthening your brain's ability to be bored and, and not to do something about it in the moment. And, and what do you do to set up that, that criteria of what is worth you know, focusing on and not focusing on? Is that something that you is, – is it kind of fluid? Is that something you set up you know, in advance before you get into that deep work? Yeah, so th- that's kind of another issue. What is uh, what is something? What is deep work and what's not deep work? And I, I think a, a useful rule is to ask yourself: If I took a, a, a recent college graduate who's very bright but has no particular training in what I do, how long would it take them? How much would they have to train before they could do this task that I'm about to do? And if the answer is oh, not very long at all, like let's say you're just answering some emails, or maybe you're you're uh, you're doing something in TweetDeck, or you're you're manipulating you know some statistics or something on your your email, hey, those are things that you could probably teach a bright college grad how to do in like a day or so. Those would be shallow tasks. On the other hand, if you're writing the chapter of a book on something you know a lot about. You say, well, that's a deep task. If you took someone who, who had no experience, doesn't have my experience with writing and this topic, it would take them months and months of, of learning and practice before they could do this. Uh, that's something that's using your skills and that's something that will benefit from, from deep work. And I think it's actually useful to try to keep track of for a while how much of your time is being spent on deep activities and how much on shallow activities. Because really, it's only the deep activities that produce new value in a way that's, that's hard to replicate. And a lot of people are surprised by how small that ratio is at first. Um, and it can be somewhat motivating when you see that to work backwards and say, okay, I need to fix that. What do I need to do to make that ratio bigger? Just out of curiosity, for the average person that's, let's say, you know, working in an office space and has, you know, sort of a, a multitude of distractions around them, what recommendations do you suggest to sort of address some of those? It's, it sounds like, you know, turning off the Facebook notifications and the Twitter notifications is really the first place to start. And when I when I think about the average person that has worked for me in the past, I think that that's probably one of the biggest things, the Reddit, the Facebooks, the, you know, the BuzzFeed and Twitters and whatnot. Um, but what, what else can this sort of average person do, um, you know, that's, that's maybe not working out of a university space or at home, but they're actually in an office space. What, what can they do to kind of set themselves up for success to do this kind of deep work? Well, I think the first thing that's helpful is to have this differentiation between deep work and shallow work. Now, once you have this differentiation, you could you could keep in mind that when you do deep work, there's a couple things that are important. One, you can't have any distraction during the period you're doing the deep deep work. The length of the distraction doesn't matter. Any distraction is going to give you cognitive residue. So even a quick check of the email inbox is going to ruin your deep work for a long time after that. So you have to have this mindset. If I'm doing deep work, it has to be for at least an hour, preferably more. And when I'm doing deep work, there's nothing I can see outside of what I'm working on. No quick checks of anything. So once you have that in mind, okay, now now you actually give it the space it needs. A couple things that help in the office is uh, try scheduling the deep work like you would an appointment or meeting. We have a vocabulary built around in the in the typical business culture built around meetings, right? If you have it literally on your calendar, whether someone can see your calendar or not, if you have three hours someday blocked off for deep work, and if someone calls and says, "Hey, can we can you jump on a call uh, during that time?" You can say, "Oh, I have a thing. I have a thing on my calendar. For, I have a thing from nine to twelve. Can we do it afterwards?" That's completely acceptable. Or if someone says. Hey, I sent you an email this morning. Why didn't you answer it? You could say, "Oh no, I had a thing from nine to 12. I'm just seeing it now." That's completely acceptable. People understand the the, the semantics of appointments and meetings, so that's a good way to get into it. Is to uh, block your deep work at first, just like you would a doctor's appointment or or a meeting. People are completely used to people being unreachable during periods where they're in pre-planned appointments. So you want to spend at least an hour at a time with no distractions during the deep work. 
if you can schedule it on your calendar, it's just much easier for you and also for you to deal with uh, your office workers about it. Um, and then three, if possible, I recommend trying to find at least one significant block a week where you can get to a new location. You know, I'm going to be out in the morning instead working somewhere else that's really conducive to depth because that can that can really get you to a new level of depth that's hard to do in the office even without distraction and it can be a good training exercise. And I love one of the things that you talked about kind of at the beginning of our conversation where it was you set up that criteria of of is is what I'm doing serving me to you know keep my job or not get fired versus uh, get a promotion and to me that seems like a very straightforward criteria for um, you know what's going to define deep work and, and not deep work. Yeah, and I think something that's a little bit scary, but I think is an interesting idea, is that you should consider actually having a conversation with your boss uh, where you ask, what is the ideal ratio of deep to shallow work that I should be doing in this job? And in essence, get your boss to commit to an answer there. And if you work for yourself, have this conversation with yourself. What is the ratio that I should be going for in this job? It obviously shouldn't be 100% deep work. Just shallow work is very important. But for a lot of jobs, your boss would, is not going to be comfortable saying, I want you just to do shallow work because they're basically saying, I don't want you to use any of the skills that I'm paying your salary for. I want you just to do basic stuff that anyone could do, like answer emails. So you, if you get an answer, um, now you have something to work backwards from. So when you, when you say, well, I can't do that meeting this morning or are um, out of office this afternoon and it's sort of the boss is like, what's going on? You can say, let me tell you how I was trying to get to my 40% deep work, right? That's this many hours. Here's the hours I'm doing it this week. Here's what I got accomplished during that time. We sort of agree that that's a good ratio. When you can have this sort of quantitative conversation that um, I'm trying to hit this many hours of deep work, here's what I'm doing to protect that time, and here's what I produced in that time, and you can actually show these tangible outputs, your your computer code is much more than you know. A lot of computer code of great quality. Writing of very high quality. A, st- a strategy memo that's that's particularly insightful, and, and you learn something new that's very useful to the company. Uh, that's what buys you. I think that type of explicit conversation. That's what actually buys you the freedom to actually do more of this deep work as opposed to just, I don't know, I'm just kind of off the grid sometimes and sometimes I'm not and people don't know what's happening and they don't know if I'm lazy or what's going on. So I think having these frank conversations, be it with a boss or yourself if you're self-employed, is crucial. Now let, let's look a year down the road. You know, your, your book's been on the market for a year. It's sold millions and millions of copies. Uh, a manager picks it up and says to himself, I'm – I'm loving this. I'm going to embrace this, but I'm going to I'm going to schedule deep work time into my office workers to make sure that they're accomplishing that. Is that a beneficial thing to do? Is that something that you can do, or or does it need to be on the individual's uh, time? I think depth can be managed. I think managing depth is is a skill that we're going to hopefully see more of. Uh, I think the right way to do it would be it's something that you actually need to be in conversation with with your employees. Uh, okay. Tell me about the deep work you're doing. How much of it are you doing? How can I help you protect it? What are you getting done? You know, and so that a, a boss should really be pretty tuned in, in my opinion, to the deep work lives of their employees. Now, I think whether logistically that means the boss is somehow scheduling these are the times for deep work where we all do deep work or not, I don't know. That probably depends on the organization. And in some cases, my experience has been when you try to fit those type of schedules and impose them on people, you're going to run into rough edges. Like that's generally okay, except for this week, we have a conference on Friday and I just, 
I just need to scramble and be on email this whole week or the conference is not going to go off. This is not, you know, so those things kind of are problematic, but having a, a regular conversation with your employees where you understand how much deep work they're doing, what they're producing with that deep work, and they're telling you what they need to help protect that. I think that's going to be the type of conversation that is not happening now in workplaces. But if people start having that conversation, you can get a, uh, Multipliers, I think non-trivial multipliers on office productivity. Very cool. So we're sort of nearing the tail end of of our conversation, and, and we wanted to get a little personal, if that's okay. Um, you know, the first question that comes to mind with with me is, why do you why do you write these books? I mean, you you have a very successful academic career, and where did, where did this whole idea of switching to the individual and and sort of the uh, let's call it personal development side of of people's lives where did that where did that all come from? Yeah, well, I write these books for me. I mean, so so writing this book on deep work, uh, deep work is what I need to do my job better. And, you know, as I mentioned, writing this book made me better at deep work and doubled my output uh, as an academic. So uh, I take topics that matter to me, uh, just like lots of people do. The only difference is when I look into these topics, I don't just make changes in my own life. I also write books about them at the same time. But what motivates you as far as, you know, uh, thinking, you know, thinking about getting this book out and I know publishing a book is not, is not an easy task. Writing it is definitely not an easy task, but you know, what keeps driving you? Well, I mean, I think these topics are, are interesting. I think they're important. I mean, I I think, especially in the world of work in, in this new age, this digital age, this connected age, um, we're just getting started. It's just like the early days of the Industrial Revolution. And if, if you went back to the early days of the Industrial Revolution uh, and went to the typical factory, it looks nothing like factories ended up looking by the time you got to, say, the year 1900. It was chaos. Like we, we had all these new technologies. They were unleashing all this productivity, and no one knew how to work. Things like the assembly line, These have, we hadn't figured any of this out yet. We just had these new tools, and we had to figure out how to use them. I think in in, uh, the digital age, we're at the very beginning. We have all these new tools. They're unlocking a lot of productivity, but we have no idea how do we use these. How do we how do we work successfully and happily in this new digital age? And I think that's such a cool conversation to have such a revolution that I want to be a part of it. I want to have some some part of helping to shape our understanding of of what it means to work and be successful in this new age of work. And I feel like I feel like this is a great conversation to be having at the beginning of 2016 because 2015 to me was the year of the you know it's the mindful year. It's sort of that year of of awareness and and I feel like now that we're all aware, we need to focus. <laughs> and yeah. so this, you know it's a great it's a great conversation to be having. I'm very yeah. um, I'm very curious. Uh, you know, you, you brought up the geniuses at MIT a few times, and you know, it, it sounds like you've definitely been around some of the you know the the best and the brightest. And I'm I'm curious as to what is some of the best advice that you've ever received, whether it's personal, whether it's about work, you know, whether it's just about how to how to show up and do do your best in the world. Like, what's what's some of the best advice that you've ever received? Well, you know, as, as an academic, back when I was trained as a grad student, I think that. The advice I, I heard often from people that I very ad- admired was, um, you know, all that matters is you need to put all of your attention on. I mean, in their terminology, it would be like getting uh, papers in X, and they would give the name of the most prestigious and competitive uh, conference or journal in my field of computer science. But what they meant by it was ultimately what you're judged on is the thing you do best. Like if you're producing beautiful new results that have a big impact, everything else will good will follow. And you, I would get this advice every time you'd have the the sort of inclination to like, well, maybe I should work on this or I should explore this or maybe I should start this thing over here. And it's kind of 
endeavors and schemes and what if I did that or this, they would come back to, no, no, what matters is take all the time you would spend on that and that internship or this or that and put it towards trying to actually produce something that is truly valuable, truly new to the world. And I think that mindset is generalizable, right? That, that in the end, you should be putting as much of your work effort as possible towards craft, actually trying to get better and create something that's at the very limit of your ability to create. If all of your time is being spread out on all these sort of uh, periphery things, things that aren't competitive to do, things that don't require your skills, things that are kind of useful but not, not great – you're not creating real value. If you, if, you, if you create things that are at the very limits of your ability to create, all the other good stuff that you're seeking comes after it. And that's really stuck with me. Very cool. And just to shift from that idea of the best advice that you've ever been given and then to you know, impact, what's, what's really like the – if you could leave a legacy in the world, what would that legacy be around? Well, certainly in the world of writing, it's it's you know what I mentioned is that I want to be a voice in this this new shifting world of work that has some impact on on how we think about what it means to work and be successful and happy in the digital age. Uh, those questions are open, and and, and hopefully I, I will have some say in, in the answers we settle on. And we always like to ask our guests. You know, this is the Man Talks podcast, so we you know we talk about masculinity. Uh, what do you think it means to be a man today? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's not a broad or, or small is, question at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, from a chromosomal level, I believe it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, no, that that is a good question. I don't. It, that's hard. I mean, you know, it's living, having having a set of having a set of values, uh, and and not talk, not just talking about them, but but living them, you know, you, you believe this is what's important in a life well lived and, you know, putting your actions where your mouth is actually, you know, going out there and trying to live that even when it's not easy. Uh, you know, it's simple to say, but so hard to do. But, but to me, that's the, that's the meta struggle that you, you go through day to day to try to, you know, as a man, you know, live a manly life. Yeah. And do you, do you think that from like a societal standpoint that, the role of a man has shifted at all over the last little while and or is it shifting currently yeah i mean obviously there's there's cultural things that that shift as culturals evolve and you know as cultures evolve uh but you have these overarching things this notion of you know you 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 have uh a set of important values that you actually live out in your life now now what all those values are you know shifts over time for you know men back in the the late medieval period, it would have a lot to do with, you know, codes of chivalry. And, and in the, the, you know, 16th and 17th century, there would be these sort of codes of honor where the most important thing is that if this person said something bad to you as a man, you definitely need to have a duel because <laughs> that, that's, that's the most important thing. Okay. Things have shifted. We don't duel as much anymore. And, and, uh, <laughs> maybe we should. Maybe, maybe we should. And yeah. that would be the next book. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, man. Uh, and so those things shift, but what underlies it, I guess, is this notion of, you know, uh, you you have this set of values and you actually you, you strive to do the things that you think are important for life well lived as opposed to what's you know easy in the moment yeah and then I, i'm just i'm so curious i have to ask it but from a from an academic standpoint do you feel that the role of men in academia has shifted at all over the last you know 20 or 30 years Oh, in academia, that's interesting. Well, I mean, obviously, the main shift is that 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 used to be a sex segregated field, and it's it's anything but that now, which is a great thing. And and so I, I think the role, like academia, was it mean to be in academia is sort of uh, agnostic to to sex at this point. It's just about what does it mean to be 
good and impactful in academia. Very cool. Very Thank cool. You. Awesome. Well, Cal, thanks so much. This was an absolutely incredible conversation. We can't wait for the book to come out, as I'm sure the listeners can't wait for the book to come out as well. Um, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, join us next week for another conversation with another inspiring man on the Man Talks podcast. You can check out more podcasts by going to mantalks.com or by checking us out on iTunes. Uh, if you subscribe to iTunes, you can never miss an episode. And, and on that note, we've got some amazing subscribers who have left us some awesome reviews on iTunes, which we like to call out specifically uh sean santamore uh who's, who's left us an amazing review as well as medgar 1848 thank you so much it really means a lot to leave those reviews because it not only you know uh, tells us we're doing a good job but it also helps uh us climb the ranks in the itunes uh in the itunes world and let us know who you want to have on the uh on the podcast we'll we'll hunt them down and find them exactly <laughs> guys like cal newport uh we, we want to have more of so cal thanks so much uh have a wonderful wonderful week and a, and a great book launch. Sure. Thanks, guys.